0: Turning our Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning as we continue our look at the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. For 62 months, Mary Tudor reigned in England. We know her today as Bloody Mary. And the reason we call her Bloody Mary is that for 46 horrific months, from February the 4th, 1555 to November the 10th, 1558, this Catholic queen killed hundreds and hundreds of Protestants. What made her do that? Well, they believed the communion was remembering Jesus Christ and examining one's life, rather than that the communion was the mass that brought salvation. And for that reason she put these people to death, most of them being burned at the stake, some of the most horrific stories possible are, are come out of that. The first preacher to die was a guy named John Rogers. He died on February 4th, 1555. Uh, he, uh, as he was being brought to the place where they would burn him to death, he was brought by his family, his wife, and ten children. Uh, she was holding in, at her, in her arms a brand new baby, and they let him stop long enough to say something to her, and she encouraged him to stand fast and go to his death. John Ho- Hooper was another one who had 7,000 people show up for his execution to see if he would recant. He did not. Several others, we all sorts of them. One of them, however, Thomas Cramer, was a man who did recant. He didn't want to die at the stake, and so he recanted. And then, Bloody Mary recanted her recantation, and therefore she sent him to, the, to die anyway, so he recanted his recanting and said, now I have recanted all that, I will follow Christ. And as he went to the, to the gallows, or to the, uh, act, the, the, plate, the stake to be burned, and he didn't get burnt just like that, it was a process. And the first thing he did was stick his hand into the fire and burn his hand off, saying that was the hand that, wrote, that signed the letter that said, I no longer believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I want it to be destroyed first. And then he was consumed in the fire. One of the most horrific was a a young lady who was eight months pregnant who was tied together with her sisters and her mother uh, to be burned at the stake and she gave birth during the process. And they took the baby and threw it back in the fire. What would you do for the Lord's Supper? What would you do to stand up and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord and I will die for him if that becomes necessary. That, that seems so foreign to where we are today and our understanding, our simple life, our, our, our great privileges that we have that I think most of us can hardly process that. Uh, I believe this is why the Lord gave us this passage of Scripture to teach us of the value and the importance of this marvelous event we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. It's been confusing. It's been abused over the years. Uh, some believe that uh, like Bloody Mary that it was a means of salvation and if you didn't take it you weren't going to go to heaven Uh, that was wrong obviously from scripture others uh, see no meaning in it hardly at all can go years without taking the Lord's Supper and think nothing of it it's not important to them they see no value in it others will take it on a very regular basis but really don't think much of it they don't know the meaning of it they don't understand the meaning behind it and therefore, they uh, don't realize the value of it. They don't see what these people did in the 1500s about the importance of the Lord's Supper and all it symbolizes. To correct all of that and to teach us the truth, the Lord gives us this marvelous passage. The only one found in all the epistles concerning the Lord's Supper and what it means. And so we have a joy of looking at that together. We started last week. There are three parts in this section of Scripture, verses uh, 23 on down there's three parts actually it goes up to verse 17 the first part was the abuses that were related to the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church and this was connected as we saw last time with the Lord with the agape feast that was a potluck that was prior to the communion service and uh, there were people coming there who were overeating, over there were gluttons, there was even some people drunk there was huge division within the church and then they would settle down and take the Lord's Supper and Paul says, that cannot be. You cannot do that. And then he goes on to the second part and talks about the uh, the meaning behind the supper itself. We're going to look at that more in detail in just a moment. All that it means to us. And then thirdly, he, he finishes off by talking about some warnings. He warns us about taking the Lord's Supper in a light manner. And so this is where we are today. We're going to jump right in the middle here at verse 24. As we we started last week looking at the instructions, the teachings, the meaning behind the supper. And we find we pick it back up at verse 24. As a matter of fact, let's go back to verse 23 and begin to look at the instructions, the teaching related to the Lord's Supper, and we're going to find three vital truths that he wants to pinpoint here for us. First of all, our justification our justification. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In this same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it drink it in remembrance of me. We've already started this uh, passage here this particular section and we saw that it's a justification. This, this supper that we, that we partake of periodically is symbolic of Jesus Christ's death for us, his bodily death, and his shedding of his blood. And the key word here is for us. He died for us. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He took our condemnation, which we rightly deserved, upon himself, so that we may never face condemnation. And then he turned around and gave us the greatest of all blessings possible. All the privileges of being in him. The forgiveness of sin. Being in the family of God. And the very righteousness of God has been given to us. That's justification. And that's the great symbolism that we see here. And We've seen some of that. The, the blood of Christ he mentions here is part of that. His blood, is shedding of his blood was necessary for our salvation. But now we move on today to the second vital truth and that is sanctification. In verse 25 I just read, he speaks of the cup which is new, was it the new covenant in my blood. And so not only is the blood necessary to pay for our sins but it also has something to do with what he calls a new covenant that's in his blood. But the blood guarantees that uh, we have a new covenant in Christ. So this is confusing to us because we're not used to ratifying covenants or contracts and the way the ancient people were. Uh, the ancient people, when they read this, would have understood much better than us. When we ratify a, con- a contract, when we go down to buy a house or a car, we sign on the dotted line, and, uh, and we walk out with a piece of paper and a car, hopefully, maybe a house, because we've, we've completed a contract. Uh, they didn't do it that way. They, the contracts, at least the major ones, the treaties and so forth, all had to do with blood. Blood was involved. And so uh, uh, one, of the, one of the perfect pictures of this is in Genesis 15 when the Lord gave what we call the Abrahamic covenant uh, to, to Abraham. And if you recall there, as God uh, made a promise to Abraham in that great covenant, he had animals split in two, laid apart, and then it, according to the ancient treaties, both parties walked through those, between those parts to ratify a contract. And that meant that this was the seriousness of that treaty, that contract, that covenant. So serious that if you did not keep your end of the bargain, may you too be cut asunder and and killed. That's the kind of contracts that they were used to, that they understood. You recall in the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham did not walk between the parts. Only God's presence did because it was a promise by God to Abraham and his descendants. It was an unconditional promise by God. But that's what they were used to. So when we come to this and it says that the covenant is in his blood, the people there had a better handle on it than probably you and I do. But what exactly is this new covenant? I think we have to pull over here and park a little bit and talk about that. What is this new covenant that he talks about? Uh, It might help you a little bit, some insight is most of you have a Bible with you today. I hope you all do. If you come to our church without a Bible, you will immediately be lost. And I hope you are. Because if you're not following with the Word of God yourself, you have no idea what I'm talking about or why it's valuable. It's, you know, I'm not giving a lecture here. I'm not pointing out seven points in a poem. I'm talking about unpacking the Word of God. So without a Bible, you're really lost here. So I trust you have one. And I trust you have a real Bible, not an electronic Bible. Because the Lord doesn't honor that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he does, I don't know. But at least it's the Bible, right? Okay, but all your Bibles, electronic or real, are Bibles that have two testaments, right? So you're used to the Old Testament, you're used to the New Testament. Well, another way of translating New Covenant is New Testament. So he's kind of get the point. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, dealt with what happened prior to Christ and it dealt largely with Israel, it dealt with the, the Mosaic law, it dealt with all that happened back then, and it pointed to Christ, but in the New Testament, beginning with Christ, and going forward, we have the life of Christ, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We, we have the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the of the church, and the church spreading throughout the known world. Then we have the epistles, which are the the teachings for the New Covenant age people, and so we have all that there, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. That might help you a little bit. Charles Ryrie, in the front of his Bible, his study Bible, uh, writes these words. Uh, he says, the Old Covenant, and they, this is found in the introduction to the New Testament. The Old Covenant revealed the holiness of God in the righteous standard of the law and promised a coming redeemer. The New Testament then contains those writings that reveal the content of this New Covenant. So I think he has some good points there. But what exactly are we talking about? The only place in all the New Testament that really showcases the content of the New Covenant is Hebrews. So I want you to go back to Hebrews chapter 8 where we find the the only real teaching of the New Testament in depth concerning the New Covenant. It's mentioned a number of places but it is never unpacked and explained except in Hebrews. And so, we're, and we're not, we don't have time, obviously, to, to do a great exegesis on this, but I do want to, um, to look at the highlights. Roman, Hebrews chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 7 and 8. The writer says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding thought with them, not with, the, not with the covenant, but with the people, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and, uh, and with the house of Judah. So let's start off by looking at this new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. He's quoting straight from Jeremiah chapter 31 and, and in verses uh, 31 to 34. So if you care to look at that later, that's what He's quoting. But he's leaving out something that is found in the Old Testament that isn't found in Jeremiah at this section, but is found in other places. For example, and I would encourage you to write this passage down and look at it later. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 22 to 38 gives a lot more details about the new covenant. And there it talks about not only the spiritual blessings that Hebrews talks about, but also the the physical and the land blessings and promises as well. You see accompanied with this new covenant, this new promise, not only is these blessings are run through very quickly but also the uh, land promises, the people of Israel were promised to be brought back from all over the world and brought back to the land. And they would inhabit that land and they'd never be removed again. They would cultivate the land and have wonderful and glorious harvests they would live in it, they would rebuild the cities, they would never be plundered again, they would live in a blissful state. And all that pertains to the kingdom age when the Lord Himself is on earth. And all that was part of the new covenant. So when we come to Hebrews, we notice he doesn't mention those physical blessings here, because those are for later. So what he does talk to us about is some of the spiritual blessings that uh, will come with the new covenant. And most believe that we are tasting a foretaste of those blessings now. now I'm gonna read those to you, and if you're astute, you will see that these uh, blessings are not one-to-one here. That you and I don't enjoy these blessings in their, in their f- fulfillment. But I do believe, most. Uh, I think, my best understanding is that we're tasting uh, the beginnings of these blessings. So follow with me as I read with verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them in their hearts and they will be my God. Now notice the, the laws of God, the Old Testament law is, is no, longer part, uh, a, a, no longer a standard for us to live by. We're no longer under the law. If you don't understand that, and it's hard to handle sometimes... I'm going to unpack that from Romans 7 in tremendous detail, probably more detail than most of you want, on Wednesday night. So you'll be there Wednesday night if you want to understand the law, and we'll look at that. But here he says the law will be written in your hearts, okay? I don't think that's the law of Moses. I think that's the law of God himself, but we'll talk about that Wednesday night. And you'll be my people. And so Gentiles were not considered the people of God, but they are now, that's another teaching of the new testament verse 11 and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brothers, saying know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them teaching like I'm doing now will not be necessary in the kingdom age uh, and but it will be necessary until he comes then he says for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more absolute complete uh, forgiveness is promised under the new covenant Under the Old Covenant, there was temporary forgiveness. There was a covering, an atonement for the sins of the people. But the blood of bulls and goats, chapter 10 of Hebrews says, could not take away our sins. It would take the blood of Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And so what the New Covenant promises is the absolute forgiveness of sin that will be remembered no more. And you and I are tasting that. Now, I do not believe, as I said a moment ago, that all these provisions are in their fulfillment now. I do believe that we're tasting the beginning stages of it. We have, we have the first fruits of all that that is. But I, I think there's far more to come when the, when the Lord returns and enacts the fullness of the new covenant. And so as we, as we think of this then if, if these are true all these spiritual blessings all these provisions that God has made for us through the blood of Christ if that's true we're now talking not only about salvation we're talking about sanctification. And sanctification is God who is in the process of changing us more and more like Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. And we find these provisions found under the new covenant for that. We're becoming more and more like what he wants us to be. A couple of, well last summer, I drove, uh, there was an estate sale down the street here and they were advertising some stuff. And I've driven by this house many times and so I saw the sign and they were advertising, by the way, uh, the selling of a, of a vintage car, a 1930s car. And uh, I thought I'd stop and see what they, were, they had there. So, so I pulled over and I came in, looked around. They have a warehouse there just filled with stuff. I didn't buy a thing, of course. But uh, it is filled with stuff. And they did have the vintage car there. But it wasn't the way I thought it would be. There wasn't this uh, nice old car set in a corner somewhere that somebody could drive out or at least pull out. It was in parts and pieces. It was all over the warehouse. The fender here and the motor there and the tires there and bolts and nuts everywhere. And some happy older couple, probably my age, uh, saw all that and bought that car. And I was there just in time to see them dragging off all the parts. They were happy as fleas. They were, they were carrying fenders, they were carrying tires, they were carrying parts and pieces, and they were sticking it all in the back of their truck, and they drove away. And they're going to go home and assemble this thing and make it into a beautiful, beautiful vehicle. And I looked at that, and oh, you know what I saw? Junk! Some parts and pieces and junk and all right, what's wrong with you people? You'll never live long enough to fix that car. You're you're my age. What's wrong with you? You're going to die before you fix that car. But you know what? I bet they took it home, and with loving care, they began to put it together. I, I thought about that in the relationship with what we have right here. You know, when the Lord finds us, He just finds us in all broken pieces, all parts scattered here and there. Some worse than others. Uh, some of you, all you needed was good polishing. Most of us were all broken up. And the Lord comes along and he takes those parts. And he begins a process when he saves us of putting us together in the image of himself. And the way he wants us to be. And what a wonderful thought that the, the master craftsman is taking you and I and putting us together. Sometimes people will tell me, Gary, or Pastor, according to how well they know me. They say, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how bad I've been. You wouldn't even want to be with me. And they're probably right. But God does. And the Lord takes those broken people, no matter how broken you are, and he specializes in putting you together in a form that he wants you to be. I have an idea that if I could find that old couple and see what they were doing with that car, I would probably find it put together now but a long ways from being showcase ready. It's not ready for the shows yet, it's not ready for the showroom, but I bet they're working on it piece by piece by piece by piece. One day it'll be ready and they'll be showing it in the shows here and there, the car shows. One day they'll be, it'll be ready. And then I thought, I thought of us, you know, we're not showroom ready yet, <laughs> we're in process. The Lord is piecing us together, and he's, he's working on it, and He's buffing us, and He's painting us, and he, He's putting it all together. And one day we're going to be showroom ready, because He's building a masterpiece according to Hebrews 2.10, according to His own power and glory. And you know where that's going to happen? At the day of our glorification. And let's go back to our passage, because that's what's next. We see sanctification, we see justification, now we see glorification. And in verse 26, back in our passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When the Lord comes back, when he comes back, we're going to be glorified. We're not glorified yet. We're in process. The Lord's not done with us yet. Just like that couple is probably not done with that car yet. But one day, when he comes back, we will be glorified. When the Jews partook of the Passover, they were remembering the promises of the Old Testament that a Redeemer would come. And they looked forward to that Redeemer coming to set them free. At the Lord's Supper, we remember what He's already done. The Redeemer has come. He set us free from sin. He's in the process of sanctifying and refurbishing us. But one day He has promised He's coming back And he's going to glorify us at that moment. And the process of restoration will be complete. This is a major theme of the Bible, by the way. Did you know that 23 out of 27 New Testament books mention the return of Jesus Christ? 23 out of 27. Three of those books only have one chapter in them that don't mention him. And then there's Galatians. A major portion. It's the return of Christ. is coming. I told Marsha this morning... I. Uh, I was thinking about songs concerning the return of Christ and, and thinking, you know, in modern times we haven't written many songs that talk about the return of Christ. Southern gospel music has talked about that a lot, heaven and so forth, but not, not so much modern music. And then the rallies jumped in there and sang a song for us that really fit. That was, that was great, because that was written recently. That's cool, I was gonna sing something else for you, but I won't now, that, uh, <laughs> that they've, they've done that for me. But I was just thinking about that, this promise of Christ hes coming again. And we're and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper until He comes. What a beautiful thought that is, and it's all based on His promise. Like you, I've been watching a lot of news lately at the this war. The uh, uh, it's just awful stuff. And I've seen some some of the interviews that some of the commentators over there, the the people are making, and they go and they talk to usually women and children uh, who have been displaced and are running to Poland or someplace. And they say, they're talking to them and, and they're crying and they, it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? And, and they say, I, this, this one lady said, I just want to go home. I just want to be with my husband again. I want to be with my children and little, little children. Say, I just want to be with my brothers and sisters. I want to go home. And the commentators, at least on two occasions I saw recently, both promised them they would go home. That everything will be all right. That, they, that, all, that one day they'll be reunited, reunited with their loved ones and they'll go home. And as kind as that is, and as well-intentioned as that is, that's a lot of hot air. And every time I hear somebody say something like that, I think, you don't have the power to promise that. That is a false promise. There's no way you can know things are going to be all right for that family. There's no way you can promise that. Quit doing that. And then I think of a promise like this. We have one who's got the power. We've got one who said, I'll come back. And he'll come back. We got one One day. Maybe it's today. Oh, I hope so. I'm ready for it. Time change killed me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's a hundred years from now. I don't know. But he said he is coming back. And he is coming back. Because he can promise that. He has that power. And so it speaks of our glorification. And when he comes back, he says, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to re re, re- construct everything including you and we will be new in him glorified we're going to be showroom ready and we'll be on display for all eternity displaying the glory of the majesty of our Savior that's what the Lord's Supper is about folks you put these three pieces together and you've got the the depth of the Lord's Supper justification sanctification glorification why wouldn't we glory in that why wouldn't we love that But Paul's not done. Going off to verse 27, he now gives us a warning. Sadly, he has to warn these people, and sometimes us, that we're we're headed the wrong direction when it comes to the Lord's Supper. He warns of judgment. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. He speaks here now of the Lord. The Lord's Supper symbolizes everything we just talked about. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Symbolizes all that. Plus, it symbolizes what Jesus Christ did as our sacrifice to die for us. All that's in the package. And so when he talks about that and he says, he says something here about uh, the, eating it in an unworthy manner, partaking in an unworthy manner is to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We want to know what that means. That's pretty serious stuff isn't it? To say something like that. Why would that be the case? Because the Lord's Supper symbolizes everything the Lord has done for us and is doing for us and will do for us. It's symbolic of that. It's kind of like the American flag. The flag is just a piece of cloth. But uh, if you disrespect it, you disrespect the country. I remember back in the 60's a, a lot of pampered young people whose fathers and mothers had sacrificed everything during World War II so we could have the freedoms that we have in America now, they decided they hated America they didn't want anything to do with America so they they took advantage of the freedoms that their forefathers had fought for and started burning the American flag and why, why didn't they burn a pillowcase? you know because a pillowcase represents sleeping and they like to sleep a lot but uh, The flag represented America and they hated America. The supper symbolizes in a far more significant way our Lord and all that he has done for us. And so to dishonor it is to dishonor him. So folks, here it is. Your attitude towards the Lord's Supper is a very good barometer of your attitude towards Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. He says here this unworthy manner. Uh, years ago, I ran into a lady, I, I can't remember where, I remember seeing her, She, a little older lady, very dedicated to the Lord, uh, was serving Christ, and she was talking to me about her husband, who wouldn't go to church. Her husband, she said, was a Christian, but he wouldn't go to church, and the reason he wouldn't go to church is because he couldn't find any pastor that explained those two words in a way that was acceptable to him. His view on the Lord, on, on this unworthy manner was different than anybody else he knew and because of that he wouldn't go to church. Now I have found over the decades many flimsy excuses for not going to church. That's a pretty bad one right there. You know, I can't go to church because a pastor doesn't get this right. And uh, so as I thought about that, I thought about that ever since, that's been 20 some years ago. Every th- I've thought about that ever since and I thought, well, what does that mean? I mean if it's enough for this poor dude not even to come to church, what does it mean? And you might say to yourself, what does it mean? So you're in the right place, I'm going to tell you what it means. I hope. Okay let me give you four options here, At least four. I think they're overlapping, I don't think they're independent. I think there's four different things here that he has in mind. First of all, obviously from the context, uh, he is talking about the uh, conduct of these people. Remember, we've already talked about that in verses 17 to 22. They were coming to the Lord's Supper. Some of them were gluttons. Some were drunk. There's huge division among these people. He even said you come together in such a way that it's even worse when you leave. You know, it's awful. And then, he, then they would settle in and take the Lord's Supper. That's an unworthy manner. You don't, you don't gripe, complain, and, and backbite, and, and be divisive, and be self-centered, and then say, well, I think I'll take the Lord's Supper. That's partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And we all should consider that when we, before we take the supper in our own lives. The next one is that we have in a, an unworthy manner would be unconfessed sin in your life. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine himself and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'll come back to that verse in just a second. But, but to, to not examine yourselves. To, to not look into your own life, to not deal with unrepented sin before you partake of the Lord's Supper would be an unworthy manner. Now, I'm not saying that you now have cleansed yourself of all sins and you're no longer sinning. That wouldn't be possible. But if you know of a sin in your life and you will not confess that before the Lord, then you're not ready to partake of His elements. Thirdly, it's coming uh, coming with a careless and irreverent attitude uh, uh, towards the supper if your attitude as we partake of the Lord's Supper on, sun, on usually the first Sunday of the month if your attitude oh, is oh my the service is going to be 10 minutes longer today or or we say a little prayer say Lord uh, uh, thank you for this service and uh, then we look at our phone for the scores and uh, some news or maybe let ourselves daydream about the work next week that is not looking at this as it should be, we're taking it lightly rather than seeing the seriousness of it. Here's here's the thing. I believe the Lord's Supper is the highest form of worship for the Christian. It's the opportunity to worship him in the highest level. And therefore to blow that off as something of, of little value, of little interest, is to partake in an unworthy manner. It's a time of worship And then fourth, coming with no intention of living in a manner worthy manner the supper implies. Look at verse 33. No intention of following the Lord. So then it says in verse 33, My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one, one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So Paul is basically saying, as you partake of these elements, do you intend to follow Christ? I I think it's quite a farce to worship the Lord at the supper and all the time holding back saying, I don't think I want to follow him. I don't really want to live for him. Jesus himself one time said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? It's it's just incongruent. It's, it's, It's false. It's a farce and so to partake in an unworthy manner would be it's, it's, a, it's a hypocrisy so those are four things I think we can put together there on that so to come to the Lord's table in a manner worthy let's make it a positive thing what would be coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner let me, un, let me reverse all four of what I just said it would be to conduct yourself properly for the sake of others being unselfish rather than selfish it is to confess all known sin it is to become an irreverent worshipful attitude it's come with the intention of truly living for Christ that's, that's big stuff isn't it the Lord as I read the Bible just doesn't hold out much in the way of in, in between Christianity you know that, that mamby pamby in between follow Christ a little bit but not so much type of Christianity. It just isn't in the Bible, folks. You'll, you'll search in vain for such an attitude. We, the Lord's Supper symbolically shows us all that we are, all that he's done, and all that we should want to be. In verses 28 to 34, now he goes further. And he gives us two options. He said, you either judge yourself or God will judge you. And we have to figure out what that means. So let's start with self-judgment. He says in verse 28, he says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he, must, he can eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and, drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So he starts with self-judgment. There a lot of words here for judgment in the Greek. Judge and judgment. But the word for examine is a different word. So it means to examine. It means to look inside. It means to, dis- to discern. Uh, What are we to examine? Well, the things we've been talking about. Our attitude of our hearts, our desire to truly follow him, uh, our sinful uh, behavior that needs to be confessed, our willingness to live for Christ. Socrates is purported as saying the unexamined life is not worth living. And if he's right about life in general, he's certainly right about the Christian life. The unexamined Christian life is not worth living. I want to say he's not advocating for spiritual dissection. There's extremes. Some people don't ever want everyone to look inside and see what's going on. There's others that do it all the time. And they cut themselves apart on a regular basis. Remember back in biology class when they gave you a fetal pig or a frog to, to, to dissect? That was some of the happiest days of my life. You know, <laughs> what a fun thing to do, you know? To cut open a pig, a little pig, and see what's inside there. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool stuff, you know? But you know what? That pig was dead. And when I got done with him, I threw him in the trash can. When when you're constantly dissecting yourself, constantly looking for some new sin under every rock, uh, you don't go very far. Some people do that. Uh, We should be people who are glorying in the forgiveness and the grace of Christ. If you know anything about the, the, the life of Martin Luther, this is what drove him almost nuts. Constantly trying to find another sin until finally one day he found grace. And he found, yes, he was a sinner. But a sinner saved by grace. So look at your sins. Make sure it's there. You know what? The Lord let, Trust the Lord to bring to your attention those sins that need to be dealt with. You don't have to constantly cut yourself up and dissect yourself. But let's move on to divine judgment. If we won't do that, if we won't look into our own lives and examine ourselves, God is going to do it for us. Verse 29 says for he who eats and drinks eat and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and the numbers sleep. For if if we judge ourselves rightly we should not be judged. But when we are judged we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. To ignore the first option of self-examination is to invite the judgment of God on our lives. When I grew up, my parents had never read a book on how to have have your children destroy the house and be in complete control while mom and dad just run around hoping they do better. My parents came from a strange view that parents were supposed to be in charge. Isn't that weird? Who, Who would think about that today? Parents are supposed to be in charge. And so they would say these mean things to me for example, if me and my siblings were just crying and whining about certain things, they would turn and say, some of you might recall these words, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry for. How many of you heard that? Okay, there we go, love you. Okay. If you don't stop it, I'm going to give you something to cry for. I stopped crying immediately because I knew what that meant. All right, Because I was going to be crying for a long time. And I really didn't want to do that. Well, this is kind of what we got going here. If you want not straighten up, if you want to do the right thing, the Lord said, I'll step in. And I'll judge you. Now, this is important here, so make sure you follow me. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You will, your sins, are, if you're a Christian, are forever forgiven. You will never be held accountable for those. You will never again, at any point, be judged for your sins In an eternal way. But on a temporal basis, the Lord says, I will step in. And he uses the word here, discipline. Verse 32, I will discipline you. Discipline is a whole different idea. Discipline is the idea that the Lord is like a coach. He's going to make you better by disciplining you. You see, the Lord is not trying to kick us out of his family. He's trying to get us to act like family members. And so he loves us so much that he says, if you will not shape up and do what you should, I will step in and do what I have to do. Even to the degree, In verse 30 is a weird verse, in it? Some of you sleep. Some, some of you are dead. Some, some of you are, are sick. Could the Lord actually bring into our life physical sickness and even death because of our attitude toward him reflected in the Lord's Supper? I'm not going to argue with verse 30, are you? Apparently so. The Lord is serious about this, folks. He is serious. And he'll do what is necessary to bring you and I to the place that we need to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep this in mind, though. The Father may hurt you, but he'll never harm you. He He may bring pain in your life to bring you around, but he'll never cause you harm. Because he is for your good, and your good is to be like Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your supper. How I trust it means more to us now than before we started these sermons, this sermon series the last two weeks. I know it has been meaningful to me. I trust it has been to others as well. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.